Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is music entrepreneur and creator of modern musician, Michael Walker. First of all, this past week, there were some demonstrations against Spotify, and this was led by a group of songwriters. So it was songwriters protesting in Los Angeles that they weren't making enough money specifically from Spotify. It's true. Songwriters make less money than artists, and artists aren't particularly happy with their making. But the problem is neither artists nor songwriters really understand how streaming works, and therein lies the problem because they don't see where the money is actually going. There's plenty of money that's actually being generated. It's just not making it down to them. First of all, understand that Spotify pays out 73 cents of every dollar that it collects to creators. So that's a 73-27 split in your favor. Why don't you see that 73 cents? Well, it goes to a lot of different places. The first chunk is 80%, and that goes to the rights holder. That means that the label will get 75% of that amount, and the rest goes to the artist. That means that out of that dollar, 80 cents will go to the rights holder, 60 cents to the label, and 20 cents to the artist. So already you can see who's making the most money there. It's the middleman. It's the label. Now we get to the songwriters. There's actually two publishing royalties, and again, this turns out to be somewhat of a confusion with many songwriters. So 20% of every dollar that Spotify brings in goes to publishing. There's actually two royalties, one called performance, that gets 10%, and one called mechanicals, and that gets 10%. So that's 10 cents for each of these publishing royalties. So on the mechanical royalty, 50% of that goes to songwriters, and the other 50% goes to the publisher. That means that out of this dollar revenue that Spotify brought in, five cents is going to songwriters, five cents is going to the publisher. Now, here's another royalty. And this is collected by ASCAP or BMI or any of the PROs, as they would call them, performance rights organizations. And right off the top, that organization takes 12%. And that leaves songwriters with 44% of that royalty and publishers of 44%. So that's 4.4 cents. That means out of that dollar, songwriters should get 9.4 cents. The problem is because there are two royalties, songwriters sometimes look at one check alone and say, wow, this isn't very much at all. When there's actually two checks that they should be getting, you put them together and it's not great, but it's reasonable. But here's the problem. Today, it's not often that there's one songwriter only. There may be a dozen. There may be more than 20. That actually happens. So you take that 9.4 cents and you divide it by 10 or 20 people. That doesn't leave much money that's coming in. So as you can see, there's a whole lot of money coming from Spotify. But the real problem is there's a lot of people in the middle that have their hand out. And when it finally gets to the songwriter, if there are multiple songwriters, then any one of them is not making very much at all. So you have to understand how the splits are done. 
who's in the middle of everything, who's making the most money. As you can see, it's the label and it's the publisher. It's not necessarily Spotify. Spotify really doesn't turn a profit, so they're not making it from that. But that's why they're trying not so much to get out of music, but to de-emphasize it and go more into podcasting because they can make more money. So you just have to understand where the money is coming from and where it's going. Understand why there's not that much in your pocket. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on audio mixing, production, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes, along with what makes a song a hit, Q&A, and advice sessions every month as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, do people really buy vinyl records for the sound? Can they really tell the difference between vinyl and CDs? A really comprehensive scientific study says they can't. And what happened in the study was there's a group of people that were played a CD, they're played the vinyl of the same song, and they're played a simulated vinyl. So in other words, they saw a turntable but the record that was on the turntable was actually what's known as a DVS, a digital vinyl system. It's what DJs use. There's actually time code on the record that is controlling the CD player. So they're actually hearing the CD of it. It turns out that every single person thought that the simulated vinyl, the one that was controlling the CD, sounded the best. Every single one. Some like the vinyl better than the CD, others like the CD better than the vinyl, but all of them picked the simulated vinyl. Seeing the turntable actually made a difference for them. Yeah, they can physically see the turntable, and in their minds, it made a difference at the way things sounded. So are people really buying vinyl for the sound? It appears that the answer would be no. My guest this week is Michael Walker, who went from being a living out of his car touring musician to reaching number two on the iTunes alternative charts in just six months by using some simple grassroots marketing techniques. After touring professionally for eight years, Michael decided to set up Modern Musician to teach other artists and bands the skills that he learned to have a profitable music career. Michael now takes clients through a three-tier system of discovering an artist's identity, developing a passionate fan base, and then multiplying the revenue. During the interview, we spoke about how tour hacking started, how artists can better target their audience, how older artists can now have an outlet for their music, and much more. I spoke with Michael from his studio in Florida. Well, let's just start back to the beginning. How you get into the business of music. I know you're a player and you're, you're fairly successful in your bands and everything, but tell me about how that kind of ran up. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I started playing music in high school or at least seriously in high school because I was a pretty socially awkward kid who, you know, kind of had the social anxiety, didn't really fit in. And yeah, I think probably like a lot of musicians, um, the experience of you know playing and performing was one of the first times that people actually kind of looked at me and were like, wow, like, you know, he's like special and girls paid attention to me, which was not a very common thing back then. And um, so in high school, 
you know, I started uh, performing for some local kind of coffee house type of things with, um, for their school and made a couple of friends in our high school in Vermilion, South Dakota, like a very small, um, town and started playing in a band together and, you know, out of high school decided that we wanted to pursue it professionally and give it a shot. Um, and we gave ourselves a year to defer our scholarships to college and just go all in on the band and see, see what happened. And I remember like at the beginning, we, uh, realized really quickly, like I think a lot of musicians learn pretty quickly is that it's not enough just to book the shows, but you actually have to know how to get people to come out to the shows. And I remember the first tour that we booked, we were all so excited to like, you know, go strut our stuff. And there's like the bartender in the back of the room is the only person that came out. And, um, at the time we were literally living in our van, sleeping in Walmart parking lots and eating peanut butter tortillas for breakfast, lunch, and, and dinner. And, um, the thing that was probably the biggest breakthrough for us and, and probably just in terms of my like personal life, the thing that was an experience that probably transformed me more than anything else was, um, this idea that our lead singer had called, and now I call it tour hacking, but this idea took us from that point where we were you know, sleeping in our van, uh, Walmart parking lots to selling 24,000 CDs, um, in about six months as a band from scratch. And the idea in a nutshell was um, there's six of us in a band. And so we split up into groups of two and we followed three different tours around the country. And basically for six months straight, followed these different tours. And before the shows, there would be thousands of people waiting in line <laughs> to go into the show, um, sometimes for the entire day or even multiple days, not really doing anything better than just like camping out with a blanket and just hanging out in line. And so we thought, what if we just walk up to those people and introduce ourselves and share some of our music? And we had these dingy old Sony, I'm pretty sure they're like eight bucks on Amazon headphones that we broke apart. So two people could listen at once. And we started to walk up and approach and introduce ourselves and start sharing our, our songs. And we had a, you know, a backpack full of CDs and fit like the song, then we would offer a CD and you know, I was like a super shy, awkward kid. So that did not come naturally at all. I remember walking up and shaking and like stuttering as I was, as I was talking to people. But, you know, what we found was just that that approach worked really, really well. And that's how we sold 24,000 CDs in about six months between the six of us. And I think the reason it worked so well was, was because we were talking to the exact right people you know, the people who actually go out to shows and, you know, spent money to be there and actually care enough to like attend these shows for our favorite bands. And one thing that happened because of it was one of the bands that we were, you know, tour hacking on was called All Time Low. And they were like our favorite band of all time. I'm, I'm pretty sure the first song that we ever learned to cover as a band was uh, Dear Maria Count Me In by All Time Low. And uh, they heard about what we were doing and they gave us the opportunity to open for them on their next tour. And, you know, they had millions of fans and like we're playing for they have thousands of, of people per night. And so that was like a dream come true. Like I remember like hearing the moment that we discovered that they, we heard back from their manager through like email. Um, I remember jumping up and down, like running around the house, like, ah! <laughs> it was sort of like, gosh, what is the, um, the movie with the song, that thing you do, um, and the moment that they hear their song on the radio for the first time and they're all like jumping up and down in the store, it was, it was, it was a lot like that, that moment. Um, and those guys are 
awesome. They're just like super nice and um, kind of took us under their wing when we were on tour. And that led to, you know, a bunch of different opportunities to tour with some of our favorite bands that we grew up listening to. In some cases they were even opening for us, which was super humbling. And about five years ago, um, so I, so that fast forward about 10 years, you know, we were doing that full time and we were completely independent. So we never signed to a, made to a record label. Um, we just, you know, did, we did it ourselves and made a, you know, a lot of mistakes and, and you've kind of, we're just six kids from South Dakota figuring this stuff out as we went. Um, but yeah, and really like for all of us, we were just all in on the band and we were just, it's all we really cared about was just, was the music. And yeah, I found myself caring about, um, a lot more than just the, the band when I met my wife and, um, started thinking about start a family. And gosh, I didn't, <laughs> thought I'd be like past this point. This, you know, I've had three kids for years now. But um, you know, when I when I had met her, I was gone for most of the year, and um, I wasn't really living a lifestyle that was very conducive to being a good father or, or husband. And so I was really kind of looking. I, I wouldn't have. Re I didn't really realize it at the time, but in retrospect, I can kind of see like I was going through this transformation of you know parenthood, of becoming a father, and. So at that point was you know, one of the most challenging points of my life because I had a, a pretty big ego, I guess, or like my identity at least was like really wrapped up in the band and being on the road and being the guy on stage and feeling special because I was sort of compensating for my <laughs> growing up. I had been rejected in high school by a few girls. And so I think like my drive to play music was really in a lot of ways in response to that feeling of inadequacy. And so um, kind of going through this transformation of not being a touring musician anymore and becoming and you know, staying home, um, I went through a probably about a year where I wasn't touring anymore and I was trying to figure out how am I going to provide for my family and found out I was to be a dad. And, uh, you know, long story short, you know, we I just bought a house and, um, you know, I was trying to start my business. I invested in a bunch of stuff. And it was about $36,000 in debt and still about to be a dad. And um, it wasn't until probably about a year into kind of pursuing this, um, like starting a business, that things started to gain some traction. And it was 100% through the one-on-one -on -one coaching that I started to do with other artists. And so I started teaching things like, like tour hacking, and one of the first bands that I, that I taught that to, there's two guys in the band and they went out and they went tour hacking and they made $11,000 in a single month doing it. So I was like, awesome, like, everyone should go tour hacking. And I created a, a free workshop that was called the Tour Hacking Workshop. That was all about doing this method like successfully. And what I found was, was that people loved the story of tour hacking, but very few people were actually willing to like go out and hit the streets and you know, meet strangers in lines for shows. Um, and yeah, so what that kind of turned into eventually was, um, learning how we call it virtual tour hacking. And it's basically like a similar type of model, but, um, instead of doing it in person in lines for shows, um, you do it online through, uh, messenger campaigns. And so you have these conversations instead of like in person in line, you're having these conversations through DM inbox and it's a lot more scalable because you can create automations with many chat and it's like, we have this artist AI now that can like can have these conversations kind of the same way that Amazon Alexa can interpret the meaning of what you're saying when you're talking to her. And um, yeah, it's just, it's grown. It's become just a huge 
blessing to you know, have this community that we can that we're that we're working with with artists. Um, we have 27 coaches now on the modern musician team who we meet like weekly with one-on-one sessions to help launch um, a profitable funnel using messenger ads and helping to create you know different types of. Uh, we have like four different offers that we really focus on that we walk artists through creating a business that they can do online that doesn't rely on um, having to do live shows, especially in today's day and age with like, you know, the pandemic and everything. Um, we actually had last year, our first, uh, we started giving out awards to our artists based on different milestones. And uh, we just gave out our first seven figure musician award to one of our artists wow. who in the time of the pandemic, it was able to grow by nearly 10 X in a single year. Wow. Um, it was just really, really cool. And, yeah, now I don't. I feel like you, you got me going. You got me going, and I'm just like you know, rambling now. But the, probably the thing I geek out about most, for the, more than anything, is uh, the software as a service that we're developing right now, and integrating that in with the coaching. And specifically, there's an NFT marketplace um, that we're developing for musicians. That you know, there's a lot of, of hype and energy around like NFTs right now. But I think for musicians, for like, there's a pretty prime like industry that's ripe for disruption that that actually could make a really big impact and so um we're partnering with the um the blockchain that helped create nba top shots um, which is like probably the number one nft marketplace in the world right now and one of their investors is warner music group and so um, we're right at this kind of pivotal moment where we're deciding do we want to potentially take like outside investors on board with this or do we want to bootstrap it because we already have a profitable business. We don't necessarily need outside capital. Um, and that's kind of where, where we're at right now. That's a long way from playing in clubs and stuff in South Dakota. Boy. <laughs> that definitely is. Is yeah. that where you're at now? Do you live there? Oh, no, no. We So South Dakota, I grew my whole life, I grew up there until after high school when we uh, left and kind of hit the road and we were sort of nomads for 10 years. We kind of, we lived in Minneapolis for a year. We lived in Nashville. We lived in LA. Um, now I'm based in Orlando, Florida. I've been here for about five years and we're considering moving to Austin, Texas. So we could be closer to Neuralink by Elon Musk. Uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Which is a little bit more of a tangent too. <laughs> yeah. if, we, if the rabbit hole wasn't deep enough, like we, they're the, there's a whole, uh, what they're doing with Neuralink, I think is really fascinating. And I, ultimately that's where I'd, I'd like to be a part of, you know, the technology that's, you know, kind of creating transhumanism um, technology. I want to go back to your original tour hacking when you did it yourself. You broke up into twos and then followed three different tours. How do you decide which tours that you're going to follow? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, like that's the foundation of, um, the question that every artist should be asking themselves, not just for tour hacking, but just like for marketing in general. You know, I think like as that's why you asked the question is like, who who are the right artists that my fans, like people who are most likely to like my music, where do they congregate? Where do they hang out? So for us, um, <laughs> I mean, gosh, back in the day, it was probably like, you know, MySpace and, um, and honestly, they were just, they were bands that we grew up listening to that we knew that we wanted to go on tour with. And so strategically we thought, okay, the best way to, you know, to kind of network with the right people is to go out to those shows and meet every single person. And you can bet that when we actually were on tour with them, that we were, you know, we were still meeting every single person in line. Um, but for anyone who's listening to this right now, I think there's a lot of really cool tools that you can use to basically identify who are your target, um, market or audience. 
So if you go to like music-map.com, then you can type in the name of any artist and it like pops up a really cool network of related bands. And mm. yeah, I think just like making a list of all of those and identifying who are the ones that are most aligned with you or that you'd really love to go on tour with and kind of starting there would be a good good point. See, what I always tell people is very similar. Find out who has an audience similar to you. But most artists think they sound like someone different from their fans. The fans will say, oh, you sound like this. And the artists will think, oh, I, I don't sound anything like that. So therein lies a, a marketing problem and you, that you kind of have to get your arms around. Absolutely. That's a, that's a super good point. Yeah, because I, I think you, know, you got to start somewhere, right? So, but you could either, you know, ask if you have a current like fan base, even if it's like on a smaller one, asking for their input, like you're saying, makes a lot of sense because we're, we're so close to ourselves that sometimes it's hard to have perspective. But I think that that point exactly is why like every, with those messenger conversations, there's always one of the questions that we recommend asking is like, you know, who are some of your favorite artists that you're listening to? And who do you think I sound like? And adding to that list over time so that, so you can kind of identify the patterns between, you're like, oh wow, I don't ever would have thought that I sounded like them, but but everyone else you know, thinks that you sound like that artist for some reason. Yeah. How long has Modern Musician been going? You know, it sort of depends if you count that first year where I was like floundering and falling on my face and um, what I don't, I don't even know if I was technically like called modern musician. I think it's been about five years now that was kind of the transition to starting to focus on like a coaching business. The first year um, wasn't really even in its like modern musician form and probably year two. So it's probably been about four years since we really started to have like an actual business that was based around the coaching. Um, in the last three years is where we scaled. So it wasn't just, you know, me doing like all of the coaching, but we have like a team around it and, and, and all that, that jazz. Who are the people that actually buy your product? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I would say that the most common person, uh, who's like the perfect fit for our program is someone who generally, I mean, we have exceptions to this because some people come in and they already are, you know, doing $11,000, like, like the person who hit the seven figure musician award was already doing $11,000 per month when we started working together. So it was still like, you know, almost a 10 X growth, but they came in and they were like, you know, they were, they were already doing some really awesome stuff. Um, I would say generally um, the people that come into the program are people that have honed their craft enough where like they've you know invested enough time and energy and have at least one solid song that they've recorded either um, usually they're at a point where it's not even necessarily in a home studio, but it's like with a producer or something and they have an EP and maybe they've released something in the past, but they didn't really like have a solid strategy. They might've paid for like fake followers or fake likes or, or something. So they've like kind of gone down this path, but they haven't really figured out, um, how do I actually find and connect with the right people who are going to resonate with the songs? And also like, how do I structure this like a real business, right? It's sort of like, They've invested a lot of money into it. It's like a black hole. They keep putting more and more money into because it's their passion, but they're not really seeing much or if any like income coming back. Um, so I would say in the most general terms, like who we tend to attract are people who have already honed their craft, have already invested into the music enough that that's not the problem anymore. But the biggest issue is that they just don't really know how to promote themselves or how to um, actually monetize their music. And to go a little bit more granular in terms of who do we like, who tends to like come to, to us in, in the programs, 
it's kind of surprising. Like one of the biggest questions you get is like, what genres do you work with? Or like, does this work for my genre? And what we found is just, yeah, we have a pretty big diversity of different types of genres, ever from have inspirational death metal to old timey jazz and outlaw country and singer songwriter, folk artists. And I think what we've, what we found is that the genre is not necessarily the most important thing as much as just like the quality of the music itself. And I mean, more than anything, like the mindset and just the, the attitude of, I don't know, like not looking like there's a, there's a shift in mindset when you're looking at not just validation from a standpoint of you're looking kind of for, I don't know, more streams or vanity metrics or something, but you're actually kind of looking for how do I do this right? How can I build this, like build real relationships and real connections with actual fans as opposed to, you know, kind of just the numbers for numbers sake. Um, so hopefully that kind of answers your question. I was surprised looking at the Modern Musician site and you had pictures of some users and there were some that were quite a bit older than I would have expected. Mm, yeah. It was quite pleasant actually to see that from the standpoint that there are a lot of people that are older that are either getting back into it and, and that's my clients, for instance. You know, it, it's like they're older, they've been through it. Maybe they're in a band when they were kids and now they're getting back doing this again. But it's always the same thing. It's like, okay, now I got this music and what do I do with it? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I would say I, I love um, the diversity of, of the clients. And I love, like we have, I think our um, our most mature artist is uh, like 83 years old. And uh, we also have Marla Lewis, who's 73. And she's like one of our most successful uh, artists. She's just a wonderful, wonderful lady. And I remember she got to a point where she was getting literally thousands of messages um, every week from new fans who are you know, connecting with her online. Wow. And if it wasn't for the automation, I'm just imagining her like over her computer trying to keep up with, with like thousands of people. It just wouldn't be possible. But yeah, she's she's awesome. Wow, that's very cool. Now, see, that actually gives hope to, again, if you're older and you go, well, the only thing I can really do with this is maybe find a music supervisor and get some syncs. But there is more to it and there's more possibilities as, as you're showing. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think that that's one thing that is sort of like the great equalizer of the internet is that the tools are there to be able to, like, you don't need a record label. You don't need, like, the traditional music industry was very, like, they're looking for one box of, like, a very specific thing where now it's, like, it's possible to just be yourself and just find the people who resonate with you and your music. And um, I, I think that what I've noticed from, like, the different demographics in terms of ages, um, I think that one of the things that's really helpful is that it's not always the case, but it does seem like, gosh, you know, technology has, has evolved so rapidly and it's continuing to change so quickly that I think sometimes it can be difficult to kind of keep up with the tech aspect of it. Um, so one thing that, you know, with our, with our coaches is that they're all, you know, they're all kind of like me, they're, they're geeks, but way cooler. And like, they really enjoy kind of setting up the, the software and like the, the tech and everything. And that's something that we do personally on the one-on-one -on -one sessions. So I think that that's something that's pretty helpful for someone who, let's say they are in their seventies and they're not trying to learn all of the tech kind of aspects of how do I set the system up, but they just need kind of that handholding to be able to do some of the heavy lifting for them so they can focus more on the, the artwork. So you're dealing mostly with the artists and bands. 
But on the other hand, there's a whole contingent of songwriters that don't really care about being an artist or, you know, going on tour, playing for people, but yet they still have a need. And the need is I have to get my music out there. So how do you help them? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. You know, I, I think that what we focus on is really more catered to people who are interested in growing an audience, uh, like a fan base around their music that they can connect with. So if, if someone is just interested in writing songs and they, they actually just don't want to like connect with other people around, around it, it's just like they just want to put their music out there. That's totally cool. And I think there's different routes or maybe around like publishing or licensing that you could go around that. That being said, I do think, I mean, we have quite a few people who are more focused on the songwriter side, but they're still going through the program and getting a huge amount of value out of it based on, <laughs> I think it's more of like a human level need, right? Of just like knowing that there's people who are resonating with the music that are fans that are, that are, you're building a community, you're kind of building a tribe around you and around your music. And it feels good. It feels really good to know that you're connecting with other humans like that. And so even if you're more focused on the songwriter side, I think that there's a certain amount of maybe credibility that comes from having an audience that's probably going to benefit you on the songwriter side and just from like a human fulfillment level. Um, there's just a sense of connection or community or validation that comes from the actual like you know, relationships that, that you're building with, with these people. As a musician who's toured, you know what it's like to play in front of a lot of people and even playing in front of 10 people, it doesn't matter, but the feedback that you're getting, that's what we all live for. And when that goes away, sometimes the whole excitement of music goes away for a lot of people. Having a community where people can validate what you're doing or not, at least, you know, point you in the right direction, I think that's really valuable, as you say. Absolutely, yeah. Is there an artist that's the most difficult for you to work with, a type of artist, type of band? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question too. Um, you know, it's something that I don't think I was. I don't know. It, I, and I should say this with a grain of salt because I mean, we're like we're only five years into being a business, so we're still learning so much, and things are changing so quickly. So it's not by any means we're like, you know, like we have have gotten past this. But I will say that we, I've we've learned a lot in the last five years. For me, me personally, like when I first started, and I was coming from a place of about to be a dad, need to figure out like, how am I going to bring in some money to provide for them? And I think I was a little bit less selective, I guess, or I was kind of just like, all right, like anyone who wants to like pay me any money, like I'll, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. And so I did have an opportunity to kind of learn like who are the right people who one, like actually implement and get value and, and also just in terms of mindset, like are the right, right types of people. And so now, you know, we have an application process and we get between seven to 800 applications per month and we narrow it down to, you know, 25 to 30 artists to work with based wow. on their music and based on the application and, and their attitude. And w what I can say is probably like the, the red flags now that we kind of look out for have more to do with maybe their attitude or mindset or emotional you know, resonance versus the music itself. Honestly, the music's important. And like, you know, we have like a, it's a qualifier. So if it's not there, then we'll guide people in the right direction, which usually means, you know, um, honing their craft a bit more and then, and then investing into working with a producer who's kind of the next level who's going to really level up the, the quality. But for most people, I would say the, a bigger differentiator is actually the emotional intelligence or quality of, you know, the, artists from the standpoint, 
as time has gone on, I think I've realized how important it is to create this, like a, a really positive community and culture around the, like, it's not just about one artist or about like the team. It's really about like the entire culture. It's almost like, you know, creating a field for these plants to be planted in. And, you know, with that process is there's a certain, like there's a process and there's a time and you need to nurture the field and you need to make sure there's nutrients. And so there is a very noticeable like impact that having the wrong like a weed killer or something that like kind of like is planted in the wrong place can, can have. And so I think that more than anything, what we look for now and what's kind of like a red flag is if there's any sort of like uh, abusive tendencies or sort of like this negative, like energy that's like very like almost violence or I, I don't think that it's like a personal, th- I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's personal, but it's not for, like, I think, I, I think that everyone is doing the best that they can with what they know how. And some people, like people who are like that, they've probably been through something in their life early in childhood where they were hurt or something and their parents were probably hurt. And it's just like a long cycle of, of healing that needs to happen. So I don't have any like judgment for people who are kind of going through that or, or abusive or, but, and I think there's just like, you know, there's a healing process that takes time. But what I will say is like our community, um, we want to be very um, um, intentional about making sure we're surrounding, you know, the the field with like the right nutrients and the right plants. And if there is someone like that, we're not the place for them to like heal from their past trauma. Like that's probably for a therapist or that's some internal work that they need to do. Yeah. So that's kind of what we'll focus on, like turning away if someone you know isn't the right fit for the community. You said you had four programs. Can you explain them? Oh, you mean the four different offers? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we do have multiple programs for modern musician, but what I was referring with, with that was the, um, four different offers that we recommend that they, that they make for their fans when it comes to like their music career, um, which we could also go into that too, if you want to, but I'm happy to talk about either, either one. Well, let's go with your offerings first. Yeah. So our flagship offer and yeah, we've, explored some other some other like different types of products but i think what we've come come to is sort of like realize like our flagship offer and the thing that i think we can provide um that's has it is carved its own space at least right right now is is around our um, gold arts academy program and that's a 12-week uh coaching program that includes like a one-on-one coaching call every week we have a team of 27 coaches who do those those sessions and that's the one where with a with a lot of courses, I think one of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now, um, just as like humans with the internet, is there's so much information and it's like almost doubling every year, and it's just so much like that it's hard to actually implement or it's hard to actually sort. And a lot of times we just feel overwhelmed and we don't take action. And a lot of courses, you know, someone might buy, you know, buy courses, but they might only complete like. 2% of it or 5%. And the average is like, it's actually really, really not very good. I forget what it is exactly, but I think it's something like a few percent is like the completion rate. So I think that the with the the offer that we have with the Gold Arts Academy program, it's a, a higher ticket, higher ticket offer. So it's like, you know, it's a, a serious investment. You know, so that that offer is on the higher end of the of the market. And because of that, we're able to really focus on having the one-on-one sessions. And I think that those are something that creates accountability where the coaches, if someone, worst case scenario, they broke both of their arms and broke both of their legs and got COVID and 
couldn't, you know, do the homework or go through the training portal and all they could do was, you know, get on the coaching calls once a week, then our coaches are trained to kind of be able to take the ball and, and run with it. And we'd still have launched the entire system successfully after about a month. Um, so, you know, that's, I think in terms of like how much us being able to deliver value, that's kind of our main program, a sort of a jump start is to launch the entire system. And we also have, you know, our software that's kind of baked into it now that, that we're developing. And we have the funnel report that we're basically setting up the entire system so they can track their metrics and they have a very clear um, report of how their business is doing and how to improve and how to split test. And um, after those three months, we have uh, sort of like a fork in the road based on um, where they're at in their music career. And so there's three different mastermind options for basically we structured it like um, I, I, uh, like most of most of my ideas, I stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And I just learned, like I have mentors who basically are smarter than I am who to, did some stuff and figured it out. But one of the things that I've modeled was uh, something that Russell Brunson has done, which, you know, he has his uh, Two Comma Club Award and it's really cool. And so, you know, we when we won our uh, Two Comma Club Award, you, you get to like go on stage and they give you the reward and it's baked into their software as a service. It's really smart. Like they bring all of their, their like people on stage. So what we've set up is like kind of the mastermind. So like the one year long um, programs are based on whether someone has, is kind of pre winning a six figure musician award, or if they've already won the six figure musician award, then it's a different mastermind. And then if they've won a seven figure musician award, then we've you know created the, a next level mastermind just to kind of easily sort it based on those different rankings. Of course, you know, with, especially with music, like I don't, the end goal doesn't necessarily have to be monetarily related. You know, clearly like you know, most of us probably didn't become a musician because we thought, gonna be the easiest way to make as much money as possible. <laughs> yeah, right. I know <laughs> I'm gonna be a musician, right? Like it's it was probably because you know, we had a, a calling or a passion or we had you know this this gift and we wanted to express it. That being said, there's there's different challenges that people come up to when they're at different like places in, in their career. And for a lot of people, you know, it's a nice milestone to kind of to be able to measure their impact. So those are the main programs that we're offering and. And we also have our software as a service that's like a monthly subscription software. And um, we have a, like a seven day challenge that basically teaches people how to use the software and how to launch uh, one of these messenger campaigns for themselves. One last question. What's the best piece of advice, could be business, could be music, that you ever either learned yourself or you received from somebody else? <laughs> that's such a good question. I think that one of the best pieces of advice that I could share, and this is like most, you know, good advice. I think that, you know, there's a lot of people who've referenced it in different ways and said it in a multitude of different ways. But I think that one of the biggest game changers for me personally has been taking an approach of, maybe you could call it like experimentation or an openness or a willingness to learn, a willingness to, to fail or like stupid yeah, I think that whenever you're developing like a new skill for the first time that it's like the same way you picked up a guitar for the first time, you didn't just instantly sound awesome. There's kind of this stage of awkwardness or like, you know, kind of failing forward that you need to go through. And I think that where most people get stuck is taking too, getting stuck too early on with, you know, not even just like taking action at the beginning because they're afraid of looking stupid or not being perfect. And so the piece of advice is just to like, you know, jump, jump into the deep end of the pool, learn how to swim as quickly as possible, but do it in a you know, safe way. Obviously don't, you don't want to drown, but when you're stepping up to the free throw line, don't take 
three days to shoot the free throw, like take like a second, aim, shoot it, see where the free throw landed. And based on where it landed, that's going to give you more feedback to be able to adjust your approach and shoot again, as opposed to taking a way too long initially, just kind of aiming. You can find out more about Michael and Modern Musician at modern-musician.com. That's modern-musician.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>